Today, we are, um, we are actually nearing the end of a series that we have been in for the last couple of months that we have called Deeply Formed. And um, we've loosely sort of structured this series based off of this book, which is called The Deeply Formed Life by Rich Velotis. We plugged it heavily at the beginning of the series, and I want to encourage you, if you have not yet picked up this book, it is a really great book. It's a great summer read. Pick it up. Read it next month. You'll love it. Um, but basically what we have been doing is we've spent the last few months examining what kind of life practices and rhythms that God would invite us to adopt for ourselves as we are in a season of rebuilding our family rhythms and our, our work rhythms and everything else after a year of discombobulation. I don't even know what word to use. Discombobulation seems like the best one. And I hope that this series has been helpful for you. I hope that during this series that you have taken some of the practices or some of the values that we have uh, been preaching on and that something from it has stuck and is leading you to try some new things, um, discovering uh, sort of new rhythms with God. And I know how life can get, how you can come Sunday after Sunday and you can show up and be inspired by the word of God and really want to try something new. But then Monday morning hits, the busyness of life sort of collides with, with, with you, and suddenly everything that was well-intended just sort of drops off. And so if that's you, I get it. I just want to encourage you to take one of these practices, one of these things that we've gained over these last uh, few weeks, uh, to try to rebuild with purpose. Next week, we are going to finish this series with a sermon about a sacred pace, living a life sort of in step with the speed that God has called us to live. Um, but today we are going to talk all about what it means to be a missional presence in our world. How do we not only do the work of God's mission, but also become the people through whom God's presence naturally flows? So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn it, uh, open it up to Matthew chapter 28. And while you're turning there, I'll pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for your presence here with us this morning. Thank you, Lord, for just the opportunity to sing boldly, uh, to glorify you, and to do it together in the same room. We never want to take that for granted again. We ask, Father, that this morning as we open your word, that you would uh, come and speak to us. I pray, Lord, that something would stick for each person um, because we want to leave here changed. We pray this all in your name, God. Amen. Here are the very last words that Jesus spoke uh, that are recorded in Matthew's gospel, beginning in verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, if you've been a part of church for any length of time, you will recognize this as being a very common quoted passage. It's one that we, we go to over and over again whenever we talk about sort of the marching orders that Jesus gives us. But consider the context. After three years 
of nonstop ministry. Jesus going from town to town and, and ministering to people by proclaiming, announcing the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand and laying his hand on sick people, people who were unclean, people who could actually transmit diseases to him if he wasn't careful, and seeing them healed. And after commanding evil spirits to come out of people, and then after uh, suffering on the cross and dying for the sins of the world, and then even beyond that, conquering sin and death by rising from the grave, and then after his resurrection, going and presenting a new resurrected body before all of his disciples and opening the scriptures to them and showing how all of scripture pointed to this event, this world-changing event. After all of that, Jesus then gives these marching orders to his followers. And I think that it's really valuable to see that the story of Jesus doesn't just resolve with a happily ever after, but that actually the gospel of Matthew ends with a commissioning of Jesus' followers, which essentially is saying that this is not the end of the story. It's actually only the beginning. In Acts chapter 1, we, we see that uh, the author of Acts, uh, a guy named Luke, he writes this. At the very beginning, this is how he introduces his book. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, speaking of the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Luke is saying that the previous gospel that he wrote was only the beginning of what Jesus was, was what he began to do and to teach but that what happens next in the book of Acts and even beyond is the continuation of the story. He's saying that what happens in the book of Acts, Jesus is continuing to teach things and he is continuing to do things through his apostles. And that that story is continuing today through the lives of Jesus' followers, you and me. Every Christian is called to follow the marching orders from Jesus that are laid out in Matthew 28. 2,000 years later, all of us have still been commissioned to what? To go and make disciples. But because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and because he has given us the Holy Spirit, all of us are commanded to follow him in sort of going about the world and demonstrating the kingdom of God everywhere that we go, teaching people to obey everything that he commanded and taught us. And so my point here is to say that we cannot live deeply formed lives without connecting our lives to the purpose that God has given to the church. We've spent all of these weeks talking about what it looks like to be deeply formed. And your purpose is not merely to live emotionally healthy or to live in inclusive community or to experience sexual wholeness or to live with deeper empathy or greater meaning in your vocation. Though All of those things are crucial for a deeply formed life. But as a Christian, your purpose must be connected to your obedience to Jesus' final command, which is this, to make disciples. Now, when I say this, when I start talking about making disciples, going and proclaiming the gospel, sharing your faith, if you have been a Christian for even a little while, no doubt you have felt pulled at some point to share your faith with other people, or at least want to be the kind of person to share your faith with other people. And if you haven't ever experienced that, then no doubt you've at least been, felt the obligation heaped on you by the church. 
Over the decades in evangelicalism, we have majored on all kinds of techniques to help people figure out how to share Jesus with other people. So I want to ask a few questions. I'm going to put a couple of them out there. And you just count in your mind how many of these things you might have personally done. Have you ever asked someone if they were to die tonight, do they know where they would end up? Have you ever led someone on the Romans road or explained the four spiritual laws? Have you ever done evangelism explosion or the way of the master? These sound like inside terms, but trust me, they're real. Have you ever been in any kind of eternity play, like Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames, or maybe you were in one of those youth group hell houses where, you know, everybody dies and goes to hell? Have you ever handed out gospel tracts? Have you ever made a bracelet that had different color beads on it for each of the different parts of the gospel story? Have you ever preached on the street? Have you ever gone on a treasure hunt or done power evangelism? Have you ever invited a friend to Alpha or to a weekend church service or some kind of special church event? Have you ever gone on a mission trip to build houses or done medical clinics or run a VBS? Have you ever drawn a grid of all of the neighborhood houses around you and strategized how you were going to reach out to each one of them, how to neighbor them into the kingdom. Have you ever done the awkward coffee or happy hour with a friend where you simply finally blurt out the gospel? Has anybody ever done any of those things? Yeah? There's some chuckling going on in the room right now. If you are not a Christian or you are new to faith, I may have just totally freaked you out with a bunch of weird strategies. Um, that churchy people have done for quite a while. But if you have been around this church thing for a while, I'm sure that this list may have made you feel something. And let me say that while it's easy to cringe at some of these strategies that have been employed by Christians, I give major credit to any follower of Jesus who is willing to take a risk to share their faith, even when it's cheesy It's way too easy to shrink back. If you are willing to do one of these things, big time credit from me. Now, that list, I have done every single thing on that list personally, and every single one of them felt incredibly scary and awkward. And my main point in bringing up that list is to say that the church has not been short on strategies and techniques There are as many methods for sharing your faith as there are Christians in this room. But what the world needs right now is not better missional strategy. It is actually asking for the people of God to become a missional presence. Any talk of being engaged with the world must begin not with activity or technique, but with a life in God. It's not about developing a clearer sales pitch to convince people to become a Christian or or doing a really cool show that convinces people that Christians are still pretty cool. It's fundamentally about becoming a particular person and offering that to the world. Those around us want to see who we are becoming before they'll listen to what we have to say. Amen? And this is my big idea for the day. In fact, I only have two big ideas. Very simple sermon. If you get nothing else out of this sermon, grab hold of these two big ideas. The first one is this. You cannot give away what you do not possess. 
You cannot give away what you don't possess. What you do for God has to flow from who you are becoming with God. It's first about who we are becoming before it is ever about what we are doing. Our most effective strategy for reaching the world and preaching the gospel and making disciples has to be grounded in the kind of people that we are being transformed into. The quality of our presence is itself central to the mission. And here's the cool thing about that, that Jesus doesn't demand that we have our act totally together before he can use us. He doesn't say that we have to be the perfect right kind of Christian before he can, he can demonstrate himself to the rest of the world through us. On the contrary, it is in God taking our broken, jacked up, fearful, angry, doubting lives and transforming us That is how he is demonstrating the gospel before the world. It's your becoming the person that God has created you to be that proves that the gospel is, in fact, good news. And so what we need now more than ever is the people of God who connect their being with their doing and their doing with their being. It has become far too common for us as Christians to compartmentalize our being from our doing where we just sort of ping pong back and forth, focusing on formation and then bouncing back into mission and back into formation. And instead, God is calling us to integrate those two things together because it is in integrating those that we will experience power to be fruitful in his mission. On one hand, many Christians try to live a life of doing without being. We often fall into the trap of busying our lives with activity for God, but totally neglect tending to our own souls. This looks like signing up to serve on a whole bunch of teams or joining multiple small groups or going on conferences and mission trips and turning every relationship in your life into a project where you are constantly pastoring all of your Christian friends and, uh, and then just trying to pitch Christianity to all of your non-Christian friends. It can even look like making your devotional life each morning into sort of a box-checking exercise, checking off your daily reading and 10 minutes of prayer before moving on with your life totally unchanged. And here's the thing. Doing without being can be incredibly addictive because if you're successful, you get to feel all of the satisfaction of doing really great stuff without any of the pain of facing your own internal junk. And doesn't that sound awesome? Doesn't that sound great? Like, man, I get the good feeling of doing good stuff and I don't have to face any of the realities that are actually in my heart. The problem is that the bottom always eventually drops out and the shallowness of your being is exposed, often through sin or burnout. You get sick You become resentful. You get exhausted from the duplicity of of these lives that you're trying to live. Passion starts to give way to obligation. And then that gives way to just sort of quitting, deconstructing, bouncing from the church. Ultimately, any doing on our part will only be as deep as our being. It might look good from the outside for a while, but it is not sustainable as its activity disconnected from the source of life and love, which is God himself. 
And so the way that we connect with the source isn't through total withdrawal, isn't through just sort of like cutting everything off and quitting, but rather through creative withdrawal, recognizing the lack on the interior and prioritizing the soul recreating moments of being with God and others so that we don't live a life of doing that's, connect, that's disconnected from being, but rather we live a life, what the Bible calls, overflowing. And doesn't that sound enticing? The idea of just being so filled up that you just simply overflow and you see God do cool stuff. Doesn't that sound a lot better? On the other hand, we can fall into the trap of being without doing. While some people prioritize doing things for God rather than being with him, Tons of Christians prioritize working on themselves but aren't engaged in actually doing the mission of God. One of the most common ways that we see this happening in the life of believers is when people fall into the trap of taking a break that never ends. Not that there's anything wrong with taking breaks. I think that that's valuable. Sometimes people come into our church after a season of being a part of another community or maybe they move into town and they are just they realize that they've been overworked that they need respite they need care they need to heal and recover and i think it's important to do that to recognize when you need that rest but that respite can so often lead into a life of inactivity in the name of not wanting to fall into the doing trap taking a break from life group or serving in the kids ministry or being, at prayer or being at prayer meetings, and then never actually re-engaging. You see, the call of the believer is to both be and to do. We are to constantly draw from God as, the, as our source and to pour ourselves out for his mission in the world. The call of a Christian is to be an active contemplative or a contemplative activist, but to do both of these things. I, I felt like the Lord a few weeks ago, I was having some time journaling, and one of the things I felt like the Lord was saying to me is that in the season ahead, I think that this is for all of us, but that the, in the season ahead, um, it is going to actually be a very challenging season that we are going to face in months to come, um, even though we've come out of a very difficult one. And that the call of God is for us to be filled up constantly because he is going to pour us out as fast as we can fill ourselves back up. So if we want to see people touched and reached for Jesus, it's going to require us to be contemplative activists not, and active contemplatives, not disconnecting our being and our doing. We must draw from God so that we can give it away because we cannot give away what we don't possess. And so when you look at your life, when people look at your life, do they see the good news at work in you? When you talk about transformation, is that ongoing in your life or is it a distant memory? Do you personally own what you've, called, what you've been called to give away? That's the first big idea. You guys still with me? You cannot give away what you do not possess. You cannot disconnect your being from your doing. Secondly, we need to talk... Uh, about the gospel. It's all the more important in this time that we are clear about what gospel we are living into. As Dallas Willard wrote, what you present as the gospel will determine what you present as discipleship. 
Another way of saying it is that what you believe about the gospel will determine how you live and by extension, your approach to mission. You see, we, we throw these words around a lot, but we, don't, we aren't always clear about what we mean by it. When Jesus arrived on the scene, he came announcing the gospel. Here's what we read in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. It says, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus came proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand. It's here. And he's calling all people to adjust your life to God's kingdom that has now arrived. Now, when Jesus came in Mark chapter 1 with this announcement of the good news of the kingdom of God, he didn't come announcing it in a vacuum. People in his day and in his culture had heard about this kingdom. They had tons of ideas. The Jews were all buzzing about the kingdom of God, but their interpretation of what this kingdom was like or how it, was, how it would arrive was all over the place. Different groups had different takes, and their misconceptions about the gospel caused them to end up missing what God was doing right in front of them in their generation. One of these groups, for example, was the Pharisees, who had a very specific vision for what the kingdom of God was. These guys were culture warriors. Their vision of the kingdom was dependent on the national purity of the Jewish people. So their aim was to get all of the people of Israel to, as much as possible, perfectly obey the Torah through religious and legalistic force. They wanted to get back to the glory days of Jewish faithfulness. That was their vision of the kingdom of God. On the other hand, you had a group called the Essenes, and these guys were separatists. They wanted the people of Israel to withdraw and to go out into the wilderness to practice their faith out unbothered by the rest of the world, away from the corruption of Rome. That was the only way that they saw that Israel could be faithful. Then you have a group called the Sadducees, and these guys were, for lack of a better word, the realists. They recognized that there was no way to overthrow Rome, so you may as well learn how to just sort of live with them, even if it means living in compromise. And then you have a group called the Zealots, and these guys were violent insurrectionists. They sought to become free through violent revolution and would often kill Roman soldiers uh, like assassins uh, to reach their ends. And if you were to ask any of those four groups, what is it that they are aiming for? What is motivating them? They would all answer with the exact same phrase, the kingdom of God. But their definitions of this gospel led them in wildly different ways of living. And so it is in our day. We live in a time where churches will say words like gospel or kingdom and mean totally different things from each other. And I believe that we are in a time when it's increasingly crucial to clarify what we mean when we talk about the gospel. Because as Dallas Willard said, what you present as the gospel will determine what you present as discipleship. There are tons of incomplete gospels that are really popular in our day and age. Ways of thinking about our faith that are just a bit skewed off in the wrong direction um, and that actually change how we approach discipleship. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is what gospel and what kingdom have we received? And how are we living as disciples 
in response to that gospel. One of the most common incomplete gospels of our day is something that I call just sort of the gospel of atonement. And this gospel has a whole bunch of elements of really important truths, but fails to tell the whole story, connect it all the way through to the end. Um, It's a story that emphasizes basically how do you punch your ticket to heaven instead of hell? And so, yes, it is true. Jesus died as a substitutionary atonement for our sin. All of our sin, the Bible teaches this clearly, all of our sin and every evil deed was placed on him on the cross. And now his righteousness has been given to us as a free gift. And because of what Jesus accomplished at Calvary, we are perfectly right with God and guaranteed eternal life. That is core. That is 100% the truth that we believe. Praise God for it. But it's not ultimately the entirety of the story. If we reduce the gospel to only the forgiveness of our sins, it is good news that only ultimately kicks in when we die. If the gospel is just about escaping hell, then what power does it have for my life today? And what are the implications for this life? What is left for me besides holding on and not falling away? And the Dallas Willard quote that we referenced just a few minutes ago, it actually continues and goes on to say this. If you present as the gospel what is essentially a theory of atonement, and you say, if you accept this theory of atonement, your sins are forgiven, and when you die, you will be received into heaven, there is no basis for discipleship. And so it's not to say that any of those things are untrue. It's to say that there is yet more, that Jesus has a gospel of a kingdom that is advancing and spreading and reaching out to the world beyond us. He has a mission that is more than just punching people's tickets to heaven, but actually the transformation of lives in this life today. Another common gospel today is a Christian version of basically secular humanism. It's a vision for a kingdom that doesn't have a king. And this gospel, like the other, is partially right, but leaves out key points of the Jesus gospel of the kingdom. It basically believes that the mission of Jesus is to undo all of the evils of the world. Totally true, but tends to default to human systems of power rather than to Jesus' authority as the king. And therefore, what we see when people accept sort of this version of the gospel is an emphasis on things like justice and sacrifice and confronting systems that oppress It declares Jesus' lordship over things that are real evils, like racism and economic injustice and slavery, but if we're honest, often fails to address the reality of our own individual sinfulness. Rejecting seeing Jesus as not just lord over the world and conquering systems, but Jesus as the one who I submit my own life to, my own sexuality, my own holiness to, and surrender everything that I have and am to his lordship. It tends to elevate his cause as the the center of worship rather than him as the center of our worship. And the gospel of humanism, it has an expression that is both on the right and on the left. It is prone to ideologies of every kind. And while there are elements of it that reflect the heart of Jesus, it misses the reality of Jesus' kingdom because it fails to enthrone Jesus as the king. Then you have a bunch of other gospels. You have the false gospel of religious moralism, that if you don't follow the rules, if you don't obey God, he is out to crush you. 
There is the false gospel of overrealized sovereignty. That everything that ever happens in the world is God's expressed will, and our whole purpose is simply to just sort of get along with it um, and surrender to whatever that is. There's a gospel of escapism, that Jesus is going to return to suck you up out of your suffering and to deliver you into a heavenly mansion. There's the prosperity gospel, that Jesus' work on the cross is ultimately to give us success and health and wealth in this present age. And all of those things contain snippets and slivers of truth, but they fail to express the fullness of Jesus' gospel for the kingdom. And if we buy into one of these slightly skewed, partially true gospels, it affects what we present as discipleship. So again, the question is, what gospel have you believed and how has it shaped your discipleship? What gospel has become central in your life and how does it affect how you are becoming a missional presence in the world today? We as Christians need to learn to seek first the kingdom that Jesus actually talks about. And this kingdom is profoundly beautiful. If you look at the life of Jesus, I mean, that is a a life that is worth going after with everything that we have. Jesus' entire ministry was centered on this idea of the kingdom, which Dallas Willard calls the range of God's effective will. It's It's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter six when he's teaching the Lord's Prayer, and he says that the kingdom of God, the aim, the God's will is that, that, that we would experience his kingdom come and his will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. So the question is, what is this kingdom really like? It's what Jesus describes in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. It's a kingdom that is ruled by God. It's an upside-down kingdom where the way of power is subverted by sacrificial love. It's one where authority comes through humility and servanthood. It's one of nonviolence and love for your enemy. John Wimber, one of the founders of the Vineyard Movement, described Jesus' life and ministry like this. He says, Jesus was full of the spirit without measure and empowered for a purpose, to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom. If you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, all you need to do is look at the words of Jesus and look at the actions of Jesus. He demonstrates it for us. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom. He came and he corrected the wrong theology and the eschatological vision of the Pharisees. He taught us the way, uh, he taught us the way of God's kingdom was not one of adherence to laws and rules, but rather the transformation of the heart through grace. Jesus demonstrated the kingdom. He healed the sick. He cleansed, uh, he He set free those who were oppressed by demons. He fed the hungry and he clothed those who were poor. He restored those who were blind and he welcomed the outcast and the foreigner. Jesus confronted the rich and those who oppressed the poor. He cleansed the temple in righteous angers. He broke social and political mores by eating with prostitutes and tax collectors and sitting with a Samaritan woman who was the ethnic other. Jesus came demonstrating and proclaiming what the kingdom of God was like for each and every individual. He says, I see you just like God sees you. I love you. God loves you, and I'm going to touch you because God wants to touch you. I want to set you free because God wants to set you free because that is what the kingdom is like. And then he goes and he confronts entire systems that oppress people. He throws over tables in in the temple because he's trying to also show us not only that God sees each and every individual person and wants to see them set free, but he wants to cast off and break down and destroy every human system that oppresses people and keeps them out and excludes them from the kingdom reality. That's what the kingdom of God is like. 
The way of Jesus' kingdom is category-defying. It will not fit into any political or social box. And the call of Matthew 28 is that we follow Jesus and that we continue what he began in the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. The call of Matthew 28 of going out and making disciples um, and teaching them to obey everything that, that Jesus commanded is that we would go through the world and we would do the same kind of stuff that Jesus based his entire life on. And so... Good news, I know that that feels like a little snippet of kingdom theology. We, when we come back from our August Sabbath prayer at the park time, we are going to spend the entire fall talking about what it means and what it looks like to be a kingdom disciple in the world today. So get ready for that. It's going to be great. Now, as we have talked about in the, um, over the last several weeks, um, we want to make sure that as we are, we are talking about each of these parts of a deeply formed life, that we are including key practices for things that we can do to sort of grow as, uh, into this, this deeply formed life. And today I want to offer two key practices to help us grow as missional presence. And guess what? Neither one of them are any of the list of techniques that I listed earlier. So you can breathe easy, okay? We're not going to do an eternity play in here anytime soon. Um, the first practice is the practice of studying theology. As Willard said, what you present as the gospel will determine what you present as discipleship. So it's crucial that as followers of Jesus, we actually know the gospel. Now, an important and often overlooked practice in the Christian life or discipline in, for many Christians is studying theology. Many Christians think that studying theology is something that is only reserved for preachers and teachers or like those who are, you know, really smart and, uh, and are scholarly. Like basically, let Jace study theology for us. He'll come and tell us some great nuggets. We'll be helped and we'll go on with our day. But I actually believe that studying good theology is essential for living as a missional presence, especially in this time and in our culture, in a world, in a time where there's just like a whirlwind of all kinds of information out there and all kinds of false gospels. And you could hear dozens and dozens of teachers just sort of bombarding you. Um, what the Apostle Paul, he, he warns us about how in the last days that people will go after preachers who tell them exactly what they want to hear. It is so important that God's people ground themselves in solid, uh, in solid theology. And that takes work. You will limit your maturity as a follower of Jesus if you don't discipline yourself to read books and to study. And I know that that, like, is not everybody's cup of tea. I know that most people don't really like to read, and I get it. I'm not a big fan of reading myself, but it's something that is so important that we discipline ourselves to do. So I want to give you a quick list. Here is a starter reading list. You can take a picture of it if you want. This is, like, fundamental, good, popular-level theology that I would encourage every single person to 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 work towards. Um, this, this, I'm not a scholar by any stretch, but these books have been central in shaping the theology of this church, but both before I became the pastor and since I've been the pastor. And the dream of my heart, if I could have like one wish, 
is that everyone who calls Vancouver Vineyard Church their home would read at least one of these books. In fact, if you call Vancouver Vineyard Church home, if this is where you feel like you belong and you want to read one of these books but you can't afford to buy a copy, send an email to the office and we will figure out a way to help you start your journey learning theology. And if you're not a reader, that's okay. That's why we have things like thebibleproject.org. Go there and watch those videos. And then after you've watched all those videos, come back to me, and then I'll give you a book to read. You should read books. It's really important. <laughs> the study of theology, it gives us a framework for understanding the Bible and our culture. It helps us to have insight into ourselves. It grounds us in a world of all sorts of competing ideologies, and it shapes your discipleship to Jesus. So practice number one, study theology. And which brings us to the second, the second practice, and we're going to end with this. The practice of offering ourselves to God. If we cannot give away what we do not possess, we need to daily be filled with the Holy Spirit and daily offer ourselves to God. All of our activity for God begins with, as a response to what God is already doing. That's what it means to be a missional presence. So a simple practice is to take just a couple of minutes each day and offer ourselves to God. Start your day with a simple prayer of surrender. John Wimber, who is one of the fathers of the Vineyard Movement, he used to say this, I'm just, I am just loose change in God's pocket. He can spend me as he chooses. I love that line. Like a vision for my life. I'm just loose change in God's pocket. I am his to spend however he wishes. And so just the, this practice is very simple. It's taking just a couple of minutes and starting your day by acknowledging that you're changing his pocket. As you're driving to work maybe, or maybe as you wake up before the kids are, are out of bed, just pray, offer God a prayer like this. God, I know that you are making all things new. You are restoring all things to yourself. Your kingdom is advancing. And you invite me to join you in your work. So send me to whoever you want. I want to be present to others just as you are. And then pay attention to what God is doing. Keep your eyes open throughout the day. And you will begin to notice as you set yourself to to um, offer yourself to God in the morning, you will begin to notice open doors throughout the day to share the love of Jesus with hurting people around you. Because trust me, they're everywhere. You'll begin to see opportunities to pray for people, to bring healing, to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God, just like Jesus did. And it all starts with us doing from our being and making ourselves available. And that is the call of what it means to be missionally present. Amen?